Welcome back, everyone. On today's episode of The Joseph Carlson Show, we're going to be discussing one company that is basically unstoppable. It is a recession-proof, durable, dividend-paying company that's outperformed the market over virtually every timeline, and it's not in my portfolio. So I want to run through some analysis and talk about this company later in this episode. You might be familiar with the company. You might not. Either way, we're going to go through it. It's called Church and Dwight. And even if you're not familiar with the company, you're almost certainly familiar with the brand Arm & Hammer. Now, again, we're going to go through this company. I'm going to try to highlight why the performance of it has been so incredibly good over such a long period of time. This is one of the contenders to be added into my portfolio or to be on the watch list if any of my companies in my portfolio aren't performing well, this could be one that I could potentially swap that holding out for. And we have a lot of other news to go through. A lot of people understand that I love dividend investing, but they're not really sold on it. They don't really get why. And this article released just today from the Wall Street Journal highlights many of the very points of why I love dividend investing. So I thought this would be fun to run through as well. We'll be looking at this article and why dividends really help lift the market up when everything else seems to be struggling. We also have the CEO of Costco being asked if there's any chance whatsoever in any inflationary environment like we're in right now, whether or not he's going to raise the price of the $1.50 hot dog and drink combo. Now you probably can predict the answer, but the way that he says it is still funny, so I'm gonna show it anyway. So we have a lot to jump into in this episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button with the bell notification. Now let's go ahead and First, talk about the market for a minute. This portfolio is doing okay. Over the past week, it's moved just barely 1.19%. That's $4,000. Over the past month, we're up 2.7%, $8,900. These aren't big moves, and I'm okay with that. So far, the portfolio has performed this year slightly better than the S&P 500. That's nothing to brag about or get excited about, but it is doing okay. It's holding its own. It's, it's preserving my capital to some extent. Now, right now in this market, it feels like we're playing a game of just trying to hang in there, just trying to have our portfolio be okay and weather the storm. Over the past month, I'm up a little bit, but in dividends, I'm up $1,230. I was paid over $1,200 in dividends in the past 30 days. So no matter what direction the market gains go, whether investors get frightened and sell out, whether they get excited and enthusiastic and buy in and capital appreciation goes up, these dividends will continue to act as a snowball compounding my returns over time, come thick or thin. That's the whole purpose of this style of investing is so that you don't have to worry about price movements with your companies. We're focused on the underlying fundamentals, the operating results of the companies, the dividends and cash flow of the companies, and whether they return that money through dividends and buybacks, I'm okay with either, but I want them to continually generate free cash flow and return it to me, the shareholder. The dividends are the most secure way and most consistent way that I've seen companies do that. I love the entire concept of having the money move from the customer's pockets into my pockets. But right now, it has been a game of just holding on and hoping that we're not gonna lose more money in the market. The big fear as of right now for investors is that we're headed into earnings season. It will spark an equity sell-off because all of these companies are gonna give very bad earnings reports. They're gonna lower guidance. They're gonna say our margins are being crushed because we're getting less customers and inflation's eating away at our pricing power. And because of that, equities, which are stocks, are going to sell off. 
That's what the analysts and experts are predicting. Now, I can't say whether that's true or not. That is macro investing. There's certainly going to be some companies that report very poor earnings. They guide down and their revisions will go down and the stock price will go down. So I could see that happening in some scenarios, but I think that this might be a concern that really doesn't come to fruition. I think there is a chance these companies report decent earnings. The type of companies that usually report pretty resilient earnings are dividend payers. And the Wall Street Journal has an article out today that I thought was pretty incredible. They highlighted a lot of things that I've been talking about for a long time. Dividend payouts set another record in the second quarter, a reassuring sign to investors who have flocked to steady income generating stocks during the market downturn this year. This is what I like to see. Companies generating more income, returning that back to the shareholders. It's such a great relationship to have with a company. And this isn't something unusual. They say annual dividend payouts have notched new highs every year for a decade if you exclude the one slight decrease in 2020. I feel like for this entire year, most of us have heard only negative news. So let me highlight some positive news here. Payments this year are projected to grow at a faster pace than usual as companies have logged strong sales and are passing on a slice of the elevated profits to shareholders. He estimated dividend payments will jump more than 10% in 2022 from last year's record $511 billion, which would mark the first double-digit increase since 2014. Isn't that such a huge contrast from all the negative news that we hear? These companies are profitable. They're generating more operating income. They're returning a record amount since 2014 increase in dividends, more than 10%. That means that your dividend income, if you're a dividend income investor, is outpacing inflation. You still should be making money on top of the record high 8% inflation. That's a lot better than a savings account. That's a lot better than treasury bonds. That's better than basically any other way to get growing passive income. They say businesses want to send a message to investors that they're in good health. The dividend is the way they send that message. Quote, if they can maintain their dividend and grow their dividends despite the challenges, that tends to signal that they're confident about their business outlook. So this is the way they signal to the market and they show investors Things with their actual business are going just fine. The broader equity market has struggled this year amid the challenging cross currents, but dividend stocks have seen a resurgence in 2022 as investors seek a regular stream of cash to weather the economic turmoil. During easy mode, when the Fed is on your side, when the Fed is getting rid of all of the problems in the market, giving an endless stream of money to bad companies that lose money on a consistent basis, when capital is very cheap, then investors start to take on excess amounts of risk. They want to get easy money and easy returns. So they venture off into free cash loan negative companies. They venture off into companies that have very unproven business models. They tell stories about how these companies will revolutionize and change the world. Then when things start to go south, when the economy starts to slow down or run into any issue, investors run away from those investments aggressively and they seek shelter in companies that generate real profits and return those profits to shareholders. This is the cycle that I've seen happen numerous times. And I think it's safe to say that in most cases, investors would make more money if they just stuck to companies that can weather harsh storms, companies that generate consistent, meaningful profits. These are good companies to invest in for a long period of time. The companies that have the grandiose stories, the companies that don't have any business model, those are ones that you probably should avoid. And if anything, they're short-term trades if you have that mentality. The outperformance of dividend stocks highlights the market rotation of 2022. For the past decade, 
Mega cap technology shares and stocks with high valuations led the major indices higher. This year, the rising rates and hot inflation turned the market upside down, with investors ditching high-flying companies for overlooked stocks like dividend payers that offer greater stability. And I would add in this sentence, the ditching high-flying companies means that investors in many cases got burnt and they got burnt badly. And now they're just looking to not get burnt again. Dividend payers typically provide that. You're not gonna get the most excessive returns on a one-year basis, but what you will get is far less volatility and more consistent returns. Dividends finish the first half as the only investment factor with a positive return. So during harsh market conditions, these are the only companies doing well. They're profitable, they're making money, they're paying dividends in a rising rate environment. That's very effective. Of course that's effective, but that's not just effective in a rising rate environment, Eric Didden. This is effective all the time. This type of investing works all the time. Not just in rising rate environments or lower rate environments, these companies will give you returns around the clock. Now, every time I bring up dividend investing, someone will inevitably bring up share buybacks as the better alternative to dividend investing. It's the same thing as dividends, essentially. The company's reinvesting the money, but it doesn't have any of the friction or the tax consequences that dividends have. That's what people profess. But when they say that, they're omitting some incredibly important data that differentiates dividend investing from share buyback investing. Companies are also using their cash to repurchase their own shares at record levels. That's buybacks. With the second quarter buyback expected to set fresh highs of $286 billion, according to the S&P Dow Jones indices. So buybacks are also reaching a record high. So again, you could say, Joseph, don't you prefer buybacks over dividends? I do not, and here's why. Corporations tend to favor buybacks over dividends because share prices typically respond more immediately to repurchase programs. But the ratio of buybacks to dividends, which is currently higher than the historical average, should come back down as the year goes on and the effect of the tough economic environment increasingly weighs on companies. So even though right now we're in record buybacks, they're predicting that by the end of this year, share buyback programs will decrease they won't increase. For dividend programs, they're predicting that they will increase, not decrease. This highlights the fundamental difference between buybacks and dividends. Buybacks are far less dependable than dividends, and buybacks are done at the worst possible time in most cases. So although I do look at buybacks and I do welcome them, I don't put them in the same category as dividends. I don't consider a buyback a tax-free dividend. They are different, and the way companies treat them with their capital allocation policies is completely different. Quote, if companies wanna pull back, it'll be towards those buybacks. They're not going to pull their dividends. Dividends are the last thing that you cut. You don't wanna tell the whole world you have a cash flow problem. So companies can nonchalant anytime cancel their buyback program. And for most of the time, investors just shrug their shoulders and keep investing. But cutting your dividend program is really signaling to the market that you have other issues with cash flow. You're really needing to preserve cash for some reason because you can't support your dividend. They signal two very different things to the market. And again, they shouldn't be treated the same because they're not done in the same manner. This is the buybacks from the S&P 500 every single quarter. So you can see how volatile it is. In 2006, buybacks reached an all-time high. Then during the recession, they went down dramatically. Then they kind of climbed back up, very volatile, but they did climb. And now they're reaching a record high. So investors can celebrate the buybacks, 
But notice how volatile every single quarter is. You don't know whether or not next quarter is going to be higher or lower. Compare this to the chart of dividends on a quarterly basis and then tell me that companies treat these the same way, that they're the same thing, that they have the same use and the same implications. They do not. The dividends are far less volatile. They barely fell in 2009. And in 2020, it was a minor fall that quickly recovered. From quarter over quarter, they steadily increase over time without any of the volatility that buybacks have. So I like buybacks. And if they were as dependable as dividends and they really were consistently growing over time with less volatility, then I would have a preference for buybacks over dividends. Unfortunately, that's not the case. That's not what the data shows. So as of right now, my preference remains for dividends and buybacks is a secondary preference. But in my portfolio overall, I'm looking for highly durable companies that can weather any storm, produce free cash flow on a consistent basis, and they can return that to the shareholder via dividends or buybacks that typically grow over time. One of the companies in my portfolio that you might know by now that I, I kind of like this company just a little bit, I've made a couple videos on the company one of them talking about it being the best business model ever. And then the other one, I think I said something like it's the best company in the world, something like that. But anyways, I kind of like Costco a little bit and not even joking. This is really what I consider to be maybe the best company in the world in terms of how it treats communities, shareholders, customers across the board, how it runs its company, the capital allocation. They never carry excess debt. And at the same time, it compounds at a far greater rate than the rest of the market. And one of the most interesting pieces of data that you learn about Costco is that they've never raised the price of their $1.50 hot dog and drink combo. This is not some tiny hot dog. Like this is a this is a good hot dog with the soda combined with it with the free refill for a buck 50. They could easily charge three, four, five dollars for this and nobody would blink. Nobody would really care. That would be consistent with the rest of the pricing the world's doing right now. They're charging probably less than half of what this would be in a fair market. They're the only thing really fighting inflation. Costco's hot dog and drink combo is the one thing that hasn't gone up dramatically in value. Here's the CEO of Costco answering a question about when they're eventually going to raise the prices of this hot dog and drink combo. Craig, you must be tired at this point of answering questions about food court, but you did tweak some prices on some items on the menu which inevitably leads to speculation about the hot dog combo. Is there any inflationary environment where you would raise that price? No. <laughs> he just says no, he's not raising it. And this is the attitude that Costco has. I love this company, I love the CEO. I like the way that he thinks about the business. They are so long-term focused. Any other company would wanna make quick marginal gains by raising the prices of every items to get more money out of the customer right away. Costco's the exact opposite. Everything they do is with an incredibly long-term focus. So Costco's one of those companies I plan on having in my portfolio for the next decade plus. I really think I'll have this one for a long time. I've already had it in my portfolio for three years. So I think I can do at least another seven with this company, plus much longer. This would be one that I wouldn't mind retiring with while owning literally going into my 60s and 70s owning this stock. Companies I can buy into now and own them for life. One company that I've been doing analysis on is the owner of Arm & Hammer, which is Church & Dwight. And I wanna share with you some of the things I found about this company because it's pretty incredible. First of all, I know what you're thinking. Church & Dwight, this is a consumer staple company. How boring. This is gonna be the most boring analysis. I promise you it won't be. And usually in investing, boring is good. 
boring companies do well. Exciting companies that attract a lot of attention of investors are usually bid up to incredibly high valuations and have lower returns over time. The companies like Church and Dwight, the companies like Costco that rarely ever make the news typically are the best compounders in the market over decades of time. So having said that, let's go ahead and jump into it. Now, before we jump into the fundamentals, I first wanna highlight the performance of this company, the performance of Church and Dwight stock, just to highlight how incredibly, ridiculously good it is. This is one of the best performing companies that I've come across while scanning a lot of different stocks. I've been doing analysis on a lot of them, and this one really struck me as a good performing company. Church & Dwight, over the past four years, has outperformed the S&P 500 with a 16% CAGR compound annual growth rate compared to 9.87% for the S&P 500. So 16% first 9.8%. It's about double the returns of the S&P 500 over just the past four years. But let's not cherry pick data points here. Let's go out a little bit further to 2010. Church and Dwight has outperformed the broader market with a 17.3% compound annual growth rate compared to the S&P 500's very impressive 12.3. So it again outperformed to a large extent. Let's go out quite a bit further than that, double the timeline to 2002. This gives the S&P 500 the benefit of the doubt, because this is after the market crashed in 2000, which Church and Dwight did not crash nearly as much as the rest of the market. So I'm actually doing the rest of the market a favor here and starting in 2002 instead of 1998. But even so, Church and Dwight has outperformed the broader market since 2002 by returning 17.3% per year, while the S&P 500 has returned 8%. 17% versus 8% compound annual growth. This both beat the S&P 500 and the QQQ over this timeline. And it did so as a boring company with low volatility that had a max drawdown, a maximum drawdown of 21% in 2009, while the S&P 500 went down roughly 50%. So it not only doubled the compound annual growth rate of SPY, but it did so with dramatically less volatility and lower drawdowns. So when I'm sifting and doing research on dozens of companies and I come across one like this, I wanna find out what's generating this outperformance. How does a company double the S&P 500's returns with lower volatility and less drawdowns for over 20 years and is still doing it to present day? That's something that really intrigues me. So let's go ahead and look at some of the fundamentals of this company that's driving its dramatic outperformance. This is gonna be using a website called Qualtrum Insights. This is something that I developed as part of the Patreon so that you can look at the fundamentals of a company in a very easy to understand visual way. It displays all the important fundamentals in seconds. The first chart that I typically look at is the top line revenue growth of the company. Obviously you can see the company's grown its revenue all the way back from 1985. And it's done it on a pretty consistent basis, maybe five to 10% per year. And it accelerated a little bit over the past couple of years. So that might be a pandemic situation, a COVID situation, I'm not sure, but we can easily see there's a good trend of revenue acceleration. Last year, they generated $5.1 billion in revenue. So they're generating 5.1 billion in revenue, and then last year, they also generated $1.3 billion of EBITDA. So you can kind of get an idea of how much of their revenue gets transferred to EBITDA there. And the EBITDA trends look strikingly similar. 
They grow their revenue, they grow their EBITDA. Now the next important metric that I look at is the free cash flow. You can see since 2002, it's been consistently positive and now they're generating around $875 million of free cash flow per year. That's pretty good for a company that's doing $5 billion in revenues. They're converting around 20% of that into free cash flow. If we look at this on a per share basis, which factors in dilution, they're growing it at an accelerated pace, which means they're doing share buybacks over this time. So you can see the free cash flow per share go up and up and up over time, which means for every share you buy of this company, the free cash flow on that share is increasing. Their net income is the next important thing we'd look at. It follows the exact same trend. It's almost always positive. And one thing to note is they actually generate more free cash flow than net income. The earnings per share of the company, as you'd suspect, are going up over time. They had a dramatic increase in 2020 and 2021. Now, if we look at the balance sheet here, this is important to look at for any company. They have taken on more debt. So if I just filter by the debt only, you can see the spike around 2017. My guess is they didn't just decide to spend on something useless, but they actually did a merger or acquisition. They actually purchased another company and raised a couple billion dollars in debt. That would be my initial assumption on this. And now they're probably working to pay back down that debt over time. So with whatever they purchased, they had $2.1 billion in debt. Now they have $1.6 billion which is a very good trend. Seeing the debt go down after time, especially after an acquisition, is something you wanna see. If we factor in the cash at the same time, they currently have $174 million in cash. Now, I don't typically compare the debt to cash because that's not really how companies operate. They use cash to fund their current operations. They use debt as leverage to be able to do acquisitions and purchases. And the debt's typically paid off with cash flows, not existing cash. So while they have $1.6 billion in debt, last year, remember, they made $1.3 billion in EBITDA. So their debt is not even one year's worth of EBITDA, meaning they could pay off this debt within a year. It is not a big deal at all. Now, obviously we're looking for good dividend payers here. This company is a very good dividend payer. I don't know what happened in 1989. They lowered the dividend. That's so long ago that I'm really not too concerned about it. I wanna look at the semi-recent history of the company. They started accelerating their dividend around 2009 after the recession. And you can see these gargantuan leaps in dividend payments. This is a very impressive dividend history. Since 2009, they were paying a two penny dividend, two pennies per quarter, now they're paying 26 cents. So if you had bought this company in 2009, your dividend payment would have increased by 13 times. And even since 2015, they've increased it by roughly 70%. So this is a company that likes to increase their dividend over time. And this is certainly because they're generating more cash flows. They have room to pay this dividend. It has a lower starting yield of 1.1%, but the payout ratio is very low at 31% for a consumer staple and the dividend growth has grown very consistently. So I'd expect this company to continue growing its dividend at a very good pace. Then as we saw with the free cash flow per share growing over time faster than the cash flows, that typically means the company's doing share buybacks, which you can see here. Since 2009, they've also bought back a lot of their stock, reducing it from 287 million shares outstanding to 244. It looks like recently over the past couple of years, they haven't been doing buybacks as aggressively but instead have been focusing on increasing their dividend, which I'm fine with. Either way, they're returning money's good. Uh, I don't have any problem with them doing that. Now, another thing we can look at with this company is the margins of the company. The profit margins, for example, have been increasing over time, generally speaking, quarter by quarter. The average profit margin is up to around 16%. So this is what we wanna see with the company. 
Margins going up, not going down. This means that they have either better pricing power, they can raise prices, maybe they're doing more sales online, maybe they have more efficiency with their logistics. Whatever they're doing, they're making more money with the revenue they're getting. Basically, every metric I look at across the board is moving in the right direction. And it makes sense why these fundamentals would propel this company to have long-term outperformance. But what is this company doing qualitatively to be able to grow like this? Really, what is Church and Dwight doing to make this happen? When you look at their brands and products, there is nothing exciting about this. These are the products that led to 17% annualized returns for the past 20 years, beating both the QQQ and the S&P 500. A bunch of name brands that sit in grocery stores that you wouldn't glance twice at. Arm & Hammer, Waterpick, you have home care products, personal care products, OxyClean and Extra. This is boring stuff. They're not revolutionizing the world or using machine learning or reinventing healthcare. They're simply selling a bunch of boring name brand products that everyone uses. Now, as boring and uninspiring as many of those products are, they've led to this great outperformance in combination of the executive team and the management of this company. They have what they call their evergreen model. Our long-term mission is maintain a track record of delivering outstanding TSR, total shareholder returns. Our long-term plan for delivering superior returns is based on what we call our quote, evergreen business model, 3% annual organic revenue growth. So 3% revenue growth on the stuff they already own. That's non-acquisition, non-merger growth. Now that's a low amount of growth, but that 3% is helpful in their total returns. Look at how they leverage that organic growth to get superior total returns. So we have that 3% annual organic revenue growth and 8% annual increase in earnings per share. So now they're saying they want 3% organic revenue growth, 8% earnings per share growth, that seems very reasonable to me. Now they say the 3% annual organic revenue growth is driven in the US by 2% year over year and international by 6%. So the mixture between international and the US with the international growing faster, the US growing slower, equates to that 3% revenue growth. Then our specialty products, 5%. So they also have specialty products that they've moved into. They're gonna see 5% revenue growth from those. Now the 8% earnings per share growth is driven by a 25 basis point gross margin expansion and a 25 basis point reduction of overhead costs resulting in operating margin improvements of 50 basis points. This is a lot of technical ways of saying that they're going to increase their margins and lower their overhead, which further increases their profitability. Achievement of our evergreen model influences both our short-term and long-term decisions, making and promoting financial literacy inside our company it is an important part of our success. So I really like that they have this very nuanced and transparent model of how to achieve these returns. They don't just say that they're gonna have great, uh, you know, a great company that's gonna do great things and give really broad general terms. They give specifics, 3% annual organic revenue growth, 8% increase in earnings per share, driven by all these different factors, which include sales growth and marginal improvements. That is a specific framework for this company to achieve their goals. And they even break down the specific factors that will lead to their long-term success and which have done so in the past. Number one, a diversified product portfolio. This is something that I actually prefer about Church and Dwight over some of the current holdings that I have. When I look at this, I see many brands that generate a lot of revenue across the board. When I look at a company like Nike, I don't see as much diversification. Even though Nike's a great brand, everything is reliant on that one brand name. They really aren't diversified in the same way that a company like Church & Dwight is. Two, they have very powerful brands with substantial pricing power. While we sell over 80 brands, 
14 of the brands generate over 80% of our revenues and profits. The 14 brands are brands consumers love and consequently are market leaders. We connect with consumers through execution of creative marketing, innovating new products, and sustaining marketing spending, resulting in high market share for our brands. So they have that long-term vision of continually keeping their market position. The company still has growth ahead internationally. Their evergreen model, their framework for growing their business, calls for a consumer international business to grow revenue 6% annually. Today, 18% of our sales are international and growing rapidly. In 2021, we posted organic growth of 5%, below our evergreen model of 6%, but lapping 8.6% growth in 2020. 2021 represented strong performance in the face of inflation, widespread global supply chain disruptions, impacts from COVID-19, and weather-related events. Our global market group grew almost 11% and now represents 35% of our international business. We have fully operational subsidiaries in six countries, the UK, France, Germany, Canada, Mexico, and Australia, and export to over 130 countries. So they're doing a big push internationally, and I think they see this as the major growth path ahead. I would assume most of the growth in the US is simply by raising prices, and they're already in 86% of households in the US. The next one they mention here, I think is a significant growth path, which is animal nutrition. Now, they're not talking, I think, mostly about pets, like cats and dogs. I actually think they're talking about animals that we eat for protein. And I know that there's a popular trend to say that that's all going away, and everybody's gonna become vegan and eat these fake meat burgers and, and vegan foods. And while I think that's a good movement, we probably should, for our health, eat less animal protein overall. I don't think it's going away. And I think that's going to be a growing market over time. Church and Dwight think so too. They say we expect our specialty product business to grow revenues 5% annually, driven by our animal and food production business. The global population is expected to rise from 7.7 .7 billion today to 9.7 billion in 2050. The demand for protein will increase with population growth. At the same time, there's a trend away from the use of antibiotics, hormones, and chemicals in animal nutrition. Our portfolio for natural supplements, prebiotics, and custom probiotics for dairy cows, poultry, cattle, and swine are well positioned for this global growth. In 2015, dairy represented 99% of animal productivity business, which is cyclical. Our focus on non-dairy business, now 24%, has created a better balance. Considering the population tailwinds and the strength of our products, we have strong confidence in the long-term growth. Do you see how smart what they're doing here is? In 2015, they had most of this category of animal nutrition, which is just one category in their business, but the issue was it was cyclical and they're a consumer staple business. They don't like to be cyclical. They like to be non-cyclical, which means their business goes along no matter what's happening in any environment. Now their non-dairy business is 24%. So they're diversifying even a subcategory of their business to have more consistent revenue and consistent profits. This is something that I think is incredibly smart from the management team. Now, before we move on to the next point, I have to plug the sponsor real quick, which is FTX US. They're supporting the channel. And a lot of people know about them as the cryptocurrency exchange. They're one of the biggest ones in the world. That is true. A lot of people use them to buy and sell crypto. That's not something that I dive into. I don't own any cryptocurrency. What I do like is stocks. And FTX wants people to know that they are going into different categories, different verticals. Stocks is one of them. They're gonna be releasing their stock brokerage publicly in the upcoming weeks. So if you sign up now, you will have early access to it as soon as they release. 
and I'm hearing that it's coming up pretty soon. So I'm excited about this. I've been buying a little bit of Amazon on the brokerage. I've been buying a few more shares every single week of it, and it works flawlessly. You can buy and sell anytime the market's open with fractional shares. There's no payment for order flow. The stock portion of this is a member of FINRA and SIPC insured, and it's free to use. So Use the link in the description or the pinned comment that will let them know that I sent you. And if you sign up, use the refer code Carlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N. That gives you $10 when you do your first $100 trade. So you can sign up now and let me know what you think. The next thing that they highlight is their growth in online sales. They say their long-term success requires them to be digitally savvy. One of the important measures of digital skills is online sales. I mentioned earlier, looking at their margins increasing, that some of that is probably due to online sales. They say in 2015, only 1% of our sales were online. In 2021, approximately 15% of our global sales were online, excluding click and collect, which is online ordering and picking up in stores. So just their pure online sales have grown from 1% to 15% from 2015. Now they go on expressing how they're not a digitally dumb company. They might look like a consumer staple company, but they do have tech savvy and they are increasing their market share in the online world. The cost structure is important, of course, for every company. They highlight how they're putting a focus on their gross margins to improve cost structure. Number seven, they say growth through acquisitions. Church and Dwight has a long history of successfully acquiring businesses. Over the past 20 years, they acquired 13 of our 14 current power brands. So this company grows through acquisitions. 13 of their 14 are through power brands. There's nothing wrong with that. They do have some organic growth, but they've really grown their brand strength through acquisitions. To illustrate our long-term acquisition mindset, we like to say, quote, 14 power brands today, 20 tomorrow. We possess a competency in targeting, acquiring, and integrating brands and businesses. In a world where seven out of 10 acquisitions do not create value, we have a superior track record in making accretive acquisitions. We are disciplined in adhering to clear acquisition guidelines. We quickly integrate acquisitions to leverage our existing capital base in manufacturing, logistics, purchasing, and other back office functions. Number eight, they say best in class free cash flow conversion. Free cash flow conversion is the rate of how much of their net income goes into free cash flow. If a company has a lot of net income, but not a lot of free cash flow, their free cash flow conversion rate is very low. They say in 2021, our free cash flow, cash from operations minus CapEx, was 875 million. That's what we saw in Qualtrim on the cash flow chart, with a free cash flow conversion rate of 116%. That's what I mentioned while looking at Qualtrim with them having more free cash flow than they had net income. And that's a way of saying this company generates true profits. They generate real cash. Number nine, they say they have superior overhead management. Maintaining tight controls on selling, general and administrative, has been a hallmark of Church and Dwight. This is something that we can look at as well to see if they really are keeping control of their expenses. On Qualtrim, there's a tab called expenses, which pulls up the general expenses a company has. CapEx, which is the spending on hard goods like locations, trucks, uniforms, that type of thing. Then you have in yellow hair or orange, the sales and marketing. In red, you have general and administrative, which is the overhead of the company. You have accountants and lawyers and administrators and general administrative. And then in teal here, you have research and development, which it doesn't pull it up for this company. But you can see what they're saying on the general and administrative here. If we filter by just that, they spent $606 million on general administrative, but this hasn't been growing at as fast of a rate as other companies. So they're trying to control this expense. This overhead rate is one of the lowest in the consumer product goods space. We believe we have the highest revenue per employee 
of any major consumer product goods company, $1 million per employee, a measure of productivity that is often overlooked. So they're talking pretty boldly. You know, they're, they're really selling themselves here. This is for investors. They're bragging a little bit, saying how nimble they are, how much revenue they generate per employee. They have crushed the market for the past 20 years. So the management team has every reason to show off what they're doing and how it's working. The last thing they mention is their simple incentive compensation. At Church and Dwight, we embrace the power of simplicity. This is evident in our simple incentive compensation plan. Our bonuses are tied directly to four equally weighted drivers of total shareholder returns. Net sales growth, growth margin expansion, earnings per share growth, and operating cash flow. So there's no way for the management team to really game the company at the expense of the shareholder. I really like the way that they laid out this compensation package. They say our equity compensation consists predominantly of stock options that are valuable only when the value of your investment rises. And our senior management team is required to maintain a significant investment in our stock to be closely aligned with you, our stockholder. In my opinion, a very good incentive structure for the company. So when I do analysis on this company and look over everything I can see, I really like it. I would want this company to be in my portfolio. It checks all the boxes that I look for. The issue right now is the valuation. The PE ratio on a trailing basis is 29. On a forward basis, it's 29. That's well above the S&P 500. So you are paying a premium if you own this company right now. The problem with this type of company, these consumer staples that are highly profitable, free cash flow generative, grow over time with low volatility, is it's difficult to buy them on a significant dip. It's difficult to wait and buy this company cheaper. And if you wait too long, it'll probably get more expensive. Over the past five years, it's traded down a little bit. I could probably get it in the low 80s maybe. If it drops down below 2020 levels to $60 a share, that was during the complete worst part of the pandemic at 60. And then back in 2017, it was at $48 a share. But they've done many acquisitions since then. They've grown their free cash flow since then. So I don't really see this company going back down to $50 a share. I really think it's going to be difficult to get anywhere below $80 a share. So I will be adding this one to my watch list, which is the dip finder. I'll be looking at it from time to time, and I may look at entering a position at some point in the future if one of my other current holdings isn't performing well, or I think this one's a better opportunity given the current price. So I'll look if there's any type of dips or opportunities to buy into this company. But as of right now, I think it's a great company that's going to stay on the watch list. So that's all for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll have more analysis on different companies that I'm looking at buying. But I think now is the time to really start buying into these companies. In my opinion, the market has come down a lot. Companies that used to be very expensive are now cheaper. The market could drop further, like all the analysts are warning, the second half of this year. But we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that prices now are much cheaper than they used to be. So that's all for now. I'll see you in the next one.